Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. This week, we are discussing the newest addition to the DSM family, the DSM-5 TR, or text revision, released in March 2022. Interesting. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in the helping profession or this week, educating the public on changes in psychiatry and psychology fields. We ask questions that you want the answers to and answer questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and Sarah, this is this is something that I've kept a secret for a while. I don't even know if you know this, yeah. but yeah. I don't like musicals. <laughs> uh, probably- yeah, I didn't know that about you. But, I mean, that is like... That is a hot take, but it shouldn't be because <laughs> musicals are not that great. I, I feel like it's it's this dirty secret that I am holding because I'm a I uh, was a music major and uh, a musician, and I I appreciate the art of musicals as an art. I don't enjoy consuming them. I've maybe seen five. Yeah, I think you're shining a you know talking. Um, this is like I'm using some of my most frequently used phrases in <laughs> interviews. I think you're shining a light on something really important there, but uh, the world does think that musicians need to like and love all kinds of uh, uh-huh. musicianship. But if you get into the music world, you will realize that there are, you know, there people pridefully protect um, their feelings about classical music. I, there's musical theater, and then there's theater, and all these folks do not get along. There's also contemporary, and so yes. We're not, we're not all we're not all the same yeah no. like i've only watched 30 minutes of hamilton because that's how long i could do it for yeah 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 i'm, I'm like i'm cooling on hamilton anyway i get it yeah <laughs> people people are, people are always time. like to me specifically have you seen hamilton and my answer is no and that like really shakes them to their core so yeah yeah i did see it um i watched it when it came out on streaming services i didn't get to go see it but yeah i mean that's it's like people people that have not been fans of music or music performance are now into hamilton and are shocked when other people are not into it so i mean like you yeah. know to each his own it's cool yeah uh yeah but hot take this is the day first. this is the day come out as not liking music a little bit <laughs> uh... yeah indeed and I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cishet white woman. My pronouns are she, her. And I either got COVID this weekend or will have oh, a stomach gosh. flu. We are um, still no. waiting to see which one happens. No. We, we went to our first wedding in two years. Well, indoor wedding in two years on Saturday. And the next morning immediately got news that people had COVID there. And then... The following day with family, there was a stomach bug going around. And we, I, I truly have no idea. We could both come out of it both healthy and that'd be great. But I'm very so quickly went from 
Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. But we very quickly went from no, no possible illnesses to here, choose one. <laughs> Goodness. I feel like yeah, this yeah, was yeah. the weekend for people getting sick. I was sick. I was sick yesterday. Yeah. My husband was sick yesterday. We tested negative for COVID, but because like nice. now that's my terror. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is legit. Yeah. Not going to any musicals anytime soon because of COVID. No. I've seen one Broadway because musical. of COVID. Fear. Yeah. It was uh, spam a lot. So I don't think that huh. really even counts. But uh, I have yeah. no idea what that's about. I've always just pictured like a can of spam. It's a Monty Python thing. Oh yeah. So when we yeah. were in, so you know, Christian sleepaway camp, there's like they gotta fill the <laughs> oh, evenings with activities, and we yes, had. I know. This one year we had a gross foods night, and there was like they lit a gross tarp foods? out. It's disgusting. They had, yeah, lit a tarp yeah. out on the. On, on the floor and put a bunch of trash bags around it because people were throwing up but you had to like they were playing past the spam sounds, and when like the music abuse. stopped it's it wasn't fun it wasn't a game <laughs> so we had to choose between the game and abuse and choose abuse but we played past the spam and when the music stopped whoever had it had to take a bite of spam like right out of the can like uncooked and oh. then one person was challenged to eat the whole spam and the game night, like, or like the gross foods night went on. And like an hour later, this kid was like, I finished the spam. <laughs> and everyone had forgotten. <laughs> I don't know if you got a prize. I drank a can of ginger ale and ate a banana in 30 seconds that night. That's impressive. It, I, tr- you know what? The, the Holy Spirit was in me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, what is the grossest thing you've ever eaten? Uh, yeah, yeah. What a weird, what a weird thing. Yeah. Um, oh, grossest thing ever eaten? Um, oh, I have no idea. I mean, that was that was like gross foods nights, but that was banana, and I have that banana every day. I don't know. I don't know. What about you? I've eaten haggis, which was disgusting. <laughs> What's haggis? Um, it is all of a sheep's intestines put into their stomach oh, yeah. and boiled. Yes. Yeah, we were reading we I were had... reading Lassie in fifth grade. This is when I was introduced to Haggis. It was in fifth grade, special mm-hmm. reading time for the smart kids. We were reading Lassie. And you had Haggis then, or that's how you learned about it? Yeah, I had Haggis then and learned about it then. But I've had sheep's stomach, like in a sandwich. I think that's close to, ha- to Haggis. It was very, it was a wet sandwich. Ew, <laughs> yeah. Like I had mine on like a little soaking. Cracker. Yeah. I was yeah, like, ew, this is, yeah. I've also tried pate, but I feel like that's normal for people to eat. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like it. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've had foie gras. So, if I'm, if oh, I'm that's what like I'm talking about. Yeah. The most ethically gross food yeah. I've ever had was foie gras. Uh, yeah. 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 Gross foods, though. I mean, you know what's edible what's gross who can define it it's very objective we can if we eat cheap yes i get those mixed (laughs) up all the time in my head which is not good because i'm a therapist (laughs) no i get it i get it i get it i like i like understand the 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 differences but then when i get into like objectification of a human i'm like okay well how does this translate like we we put a lot of words on it's english anyway english yeah. Do you have any it, housekeeping? Sorry, no. I, just, I just interrupted you. It's probably better. Um, 
Um, no, I didn't have any housekeeping. Um, I know. do. I do have a housekeeping. Oh. I realized I said okay. in our episode with Sarah DeGeorge, I said I only answer uh, T&D emails on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That is not true. <laughs> do you want to do you want to come clean? I'm coming clean that I answer emails all the time from that. Uh, okay. It depends. Usually the weekend is a no for me. But um, yeah. Yeah. I have answered emails, I think, last week, all days of the week. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's pressure to put on yourselves. I think gradually we'll be able to set like firmer boundaries with that. I, I get it. We ha- we're, we're in a pretty uh, exciting time for uh, therapist next door. I don't know if exciting was the word I was looking for. Fast paced time, because I don't know if mm-hmm. you want to announce this now. We can cut this out, Joanna. Um, but we're Mark- going to go. We're going to go on a hiatus starting in June. I don't know exactly what date in June, but but lasting for the summer because someone is going to have a baby and someone else would like to enjoy their summer. And I will also like to enjoy my summer um, and have a baby at the same time. Uh, So we are going to be coming back in September. So you've got like three or four more episodes with us for the for this portion of the year and then we're going to start a season two i guess that's exciting yeah and you know logistics will go over will it be season two or will we just hop right back onto the number who knows but we're going to come back in september and then i'm guessing we'll bring another spooky series yeah (laughs) we can also we can also talk to listeners about what kind of horror movies they'd like us to watch Mm -hmm. um and you know i mean yeah i don't know i i like i like horror movies that are I don't want to watch a movie about a guy eating women. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. I, I maybe I don't know. Yeah. I I mean I, I loved I loved Midsommar because of its female empowerment. <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. Also, we may just like watch psychological thrillers too, or yeah. maybe we could watch the cartoon The Last Halloween, which was my favorite made for TV cartoon growing up. Cool. I'm saying a lot of things. Well, but yeah, yeah. we are going to be enjoying our summer. We will have, you know, we'll we're coming be, we'll back. We'll still be around too. Like we'll still be around, and you know, we'll be coming back because we're going to be recording episodes for yeah. September in soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's not. Soon. Yeah, you don't need all the details, but you know, we're coming back. Yeah, we are. We are in the process of recording episodes. This is pretty cool. It's pretty exciting. So stay tuned. Um, stay tuned. And like maybe you'll get a birth story in there sometime. Who knows? Yes. Uh, if fun. I feel like sharing it, I don't know how I'm gonna feel. So, yeah. yeah, that is not something you need to commit to, but we can tease it. We can tease it. It's been teased. Um. All right. Yeah. I don't think I have any more housekeeping. Um, no, that's good tuned. stuff. Um. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned multiple ways after the break. To so stay tuned after this tiny little break that I put in um, as we kind of, as we go over our history lesson today, I think we should also say our, this is like not a normal episode. So we're going to do our history lesson and then we're just going to have kind of like a, a discussion about the changes that are in the DSM five TR. So get ready for that. That's exciting. Get ready. Cause here I come. Break. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you.
And now it is time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the subject we are discussing today. Cool. Good change up. Today, our sources include a brief history of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Issues and Implications for the Future in Psychiatric Canon and Practice by Shadia Kawa and James Giordano, and DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible Ooh. by Alan Horowitz. No trigger warning for today. Unless, no. no Unless jokes. you were just triggered by that. No jokes. <laughs> All right, jo I made a joke. Sorry. Yes. Jokes, jokes, yeah, jokes. no, no worries. All right, so DSM for folks listening is a diagnostic statistic manual. I did just say that, but <clears throat> next time I clear my throat, it will be directly into the microphone. <laughs> History of the DSM. I can cut them out too. <laughs> nah, I kind of. Hey, I'm a human being. All right. As the perceived role of psychiatry broadened to include mental health beyond the boundaries of mental institutions, interest in devising a viable classification system for psychopathological conditions was strengthened within the psychiatric community. So they were like, we're not just going to have folks in asylum, quote unquote, anymore. We want to be able to like help them outside with diagnoses helpful in 19 in yes in 1918 under the bureau of the census of the national committee for mental hygiene the american medico psychological association now the aapa or american psychiatric association <laughs> first attempted the creation of a formal standardized list of psychopathological conditions these efforts culminated in the publication of a statistical manual for the use of institutions for the insane, which can be considered to be the predecessor of the DSM. Psychodynamic theory gained rapid acceptance in both the clinical and academic areas, arenas of psychiatry, and by 1946 was officially acknowledged as a leading school of thought in the American Board of Psychiatry. So, so all of a sudden in the 40s, psychodynamic theory and therapy were actually gaining popularity and this is important because it was only psychodynamic theory so think about these limitations here oh, so we're, yeah. we're talking we're talking therapist is a blank canvas barely talks you talk to them you know laying on the couch i don't think the couch is actually what's happening but that's the picture that you're thinking mm -hmm. of because I'm putting thoughts in your head. The APA <laughs> Committee on Nomenclature and Statistics sought to create a new classification system. The first edition of the DSM, the DSM of Mental Disorders, or DSM-1, which was officially released in 1952. Wow. The compendium included, I know, 102 broadly construed diagnostic categories that were subdivided into two major mental groups of mental disorders. First group is the conditions assumedly caused by organic brain dysfunction. So like intoxication, trauma, or a variety of physiological issues. Second category was that the conditions were presumed to result from effects of socio-environmental stressors that individuals biological, um, wait, okay. The second category included conditions that were presumed to result from the effects of socio-environmental stressors and the patient's inability to adapt to such pressures. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two major trends can be noted in the content modifications to the DSM-2. Now we're moving on. One to two. Mm -hmm. The first was a further expansion of the definitions of mental illness. The second trend was an increased systematic categorization and specificity. 
This was evidenced by multiple subdivisions of former disorder categories, such as the addition of eight new, quote, alcoholic brain syndromes, unquote, an increased number of qualifiers from four in the DSM-1 to nine in the DSM-2, namely acute, chronic, not psychotic, mild, moderate, severe, and in remission. And the Mm -hmm. explicit advocacy that clinicians, quote, diagnose every disorder that is present, even if one is the symptomatic expression of another, end quote. So here we are. We're going from two to three. This is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Negative critique of psychiatry mounted considerably during the 1960s and early to mid 1970s. Perhaps notable, most notable was Thomas Cezaz's 1961 challenge to the fundamental premise that all psychiatric conditions were, quote, true illnesses, which by extension cast skepticism upon the legitimacy of psychiatry as a medical discipline. In particular, we saw this. We saw this in Mad Men. (laughs) Yes, we did. Yes. In particular, psychiatrists, non-medically licensed competitors, psychologists, social workers, counselors, were offering therapeutic services at significantly less expensive rates. And this challenged the psychiatric community to prove that its diagnoses and therapies were effective and represented treatment of legitimate medical diseases. That's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Advanced- Wait, can I comment that can I comment that like instead of instead of Instead of people just being like, oh, it's so good that we can, you know, like all address this as a treatment team. You know, the psychiatry field was like, oh, oh," you know, we're not being taken seriously by like our medical like brethren and sisters. We need to we need to like really legitimize ourselves, not just like a okay, you know, let's like all figure out how we can do this together. Maybe we don't have to frame it as something that is, you know, I don't know. It seems like it seems like I'm I'm. I'm defending this to just make myself seem more legitimate, not to advocate for the people that are suffering. Yes. Shock. Uh, and also like counselors like Sarah and myself can diagnose and we use the DSM-5 to diagnose. So yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. Advances in assessments and diagnostic tools such as rating scales and checklists for anxiety and depression have become something of a standard in mental health research and practice, which is good and bad. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna go. Uh, progress in therapeutics has also ensued with increasingly more efficient behavioral and brief psychotherapeutic approaches, and notably progress in psychopharmacology, which by the 1960s had developed a significant armamentarium of mood and behavior altering agents. Uh, that was a big word for me. I just want to say that that while uh while um you know rating scales are great they're they're often not culturally um they're culturally uh inclusive instead of exclusive so um they are can... they wait are they culturally exclusive sorry this is another the two words that i don't they 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 don't include all cultures um i'm thinking yes. of the um the test that I used to use, um, it was kind of like a temperature rating for uh, um, dementia, and I I had clients who were like this. I don't under I don't remember that it was. It's anyway. I don't want to. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. A lot. A lot of these checklists and scales were originally written thinking about like a middle class white mm-hmm. English speaking employed uh, American. Um, Especially so when the, you're th- the, the uh, dementia ones. Yes. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when your therapist talks about like, you know, or if you hear anybody say, you know, I don't take a manualized approach to treatment, they mean they're not going off of a manual. They're not reading from a script or an assessment tool to treat you. Assessment tools are great for use of ins- with insurance and to actually like rate, mm. you know, what folks have experienced, like the, um, it's the childhood one. Is it AES? The, oh, yeah. uh, the, the childhood stressors one is very helpful just to like, we'll get the actual name of that and put it in our show notes. But um, <laughs> So good and bad, like all things. Okay. Yeah. The increased number of mental disorder categories from 182 Whoa. in the DSM-2 to 265 in the DSM-3 That's was supposed to reflect so much. Was supposed to reflect the increase in psychiatric knowledge accrued since the DSM-2. Well, you know. Great. Challenge accepted and met. Yeah. More broad categories were made into several individual quote subtypes each considered as a separate and discrete mental disorder. Several single disorders were divided into a number of distinct categories. For example, the DSM-2 category of, quote, specific learning disturbance was divided into five different specific developmental disorders. The category tick gave way to three distinct stereotyped movement disorder, and the single category of feeding disturbance was replaced by four specific eating disorders. And this is incredible. Yeah. All of this expansion of these incredibly complicated illnesses that people are suffering from actually putting a name to it. And, you know, as much as diagnoses uh, can impede somebody, you, you know, in, you know, for, in many different reasons, a lot of times folks just like to hear, okay, this is something that has been seen in other people, can be treated, we know about it. Um, this trend of subdivision and reclassification was most pronounced, however, for the categories previously cate- classified as neuroses. For instance, three classes of, quote, hysterical neuroses in the DSM-2 mm-hmm. gave way to six renamed daughter disorders in the DSM-3. I looked this up. There's no explanation. <laughs> it's just childhood illnesses. The single category of phobic neuroses was divided into five classes of phobic disorders. The single category of depressive neuroses was substituted by four categories of major major depression. So we have mild, moderate, severe. Um, I don't know. What yeah, the it's also interesting to kind of see the the change of language from neuroses to disorder, and like how yeah. these are like these are medical conditions too yes yeah neuroses suggests behavior at least in the way we yeah. use neuroses and neurotic now um, um controversial but previously discussed disorders were formally added to the dsm-3 which i'm so excited about these this included post-traumatic stress disorder folks so not until 1980 were we recognizing that this that ptsd was an actual illness wow um also an array of childhood and adolescent disorders such as Attention deficit disorder, um, seven classes of psychosexual dysfunctions, and four disorders of impulse control not elsewhere classified, such as pathological gambling. So again, these people that were just being labeled as, you know, town. So I always think of like the old archetypes of like the town drunk or like, you know, he's been at, he's been at the card table all day long. So we actually have like mm. names for things that people are actually suffering from and not choosing to do because they enjoy doing it and the most exciting one of all one of the amendments that was had the greatest impact of the permanent removal of the category was homosexuality from the dsm-2 
The change was originally made upon the publication of the seventh printing of the DSM-2 in 1973, following a vote from the American Psychiatric Association earlier that year. So there was also a lot of lobbying from gay rights groups to have homosexuality, homosexuality removed from the DSM-2. And it's and just, it yeah. Did. Get it. And like, this isn't that long ago, also. No. These no. things like ADHD and PTSD were not added that long ago. So if we think of like collective trauma and things that people have experienced, like we're not talking that far from, I mean, Sarah and I is gener like one more generation before us that were possibly undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, you know, and not helped with the with these things that, that we might notice now, which is also maybe why there is an uptick in, in, in diagnoses now um right well. right hell yeah subsequent editions of the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders all displayed characteristics that are congruent with the orientation of the dsm-3 so it seems like the dsm-3 was a very good turning point for the dsm and people um, were mad people mm -hmm. were mad about the dsm-3 uh, the number of categories of disorders has increased from 265 to 292 in the DSM-3R, uh, which I'm assuming is revision, uh, to 297 in the DSM-4. The trend toward enhanced specificity of operational criteria has likewise become more pronounced throughout successive editions of the DSM, and information regarding prevalence, age, and sex differential characteristics and comorbidity with other disorders has been added and regularly updated since the DSM-3R. Other major amendments included in the incorporation of a section <laughs> dealing with, quote, culture-bound syndrome in the DSM-4 and DSM-4-TR, which is the text review, uh, text revision, thereby acknowledging cultural variability in the ways that mental health and illness are expressed and construed. There's even more of that in the DSM-5-TR, which I'm excited to talk about later. In all the changes to the additions of the DSM following the DSM-3 have essentially revolved around an accentuation of a medicalizing trend in psychiatry. I'll also say that when they do changes to the DSM, it's based on um, new studies that have come out, new literature that has come out. It's based in research and facts. Uh, the revision that resulted in the DSM-5 in 2013 featured political dynamics that were the opposite of those that created the DSM-3 revolution. Researchers strove to replace the manual's categorical diagnoses with dimensions that viewed mental illnesses as gradients rating from mild, ranging from mild to moderate to severe. They were opposed by clinicians who had come to depend on the DSM entities for compensation, were unfamiliar with dimensional notions and rejected the complicated system researchers wanted to impose. In addition, by the 21st century, the value connotations of the most psychiatric, of most di psychiatric diagnoses, had radically changed from stigma stigmatizing labels imposed on resistant and often involuntary patients to valued resources that brought treatment, services, and often monetary compensation to patients and their families. Indeed patient and family advocacy groups have become some of the most fervent defenders of the DSM categorical, di categorical diagnoses. And DSM-5 TR was released in March 2022, which wasn't that long ago because it's April 2022. Yeah, and source check for that last sentence. That was me typing that 10 minutes ago. Great. 
I, I want to, I want to also for folks listening, I mean, you may hear that monetary compensation and I think naturally our culture, it's a message fed to us that people, people, people shouldn't be receiving money or they shouldn't be like, people should have to be made to work or people should have to be doing, doing, doing things in a certain way and how how important and necessary it is for someone who has a disability from a mental illness to be able to survive because oftentimes even with medication and treatment the the illness is so severe that the person is unable to maintain employment and it's it is truly truly unfair that they not be able to live a life of not just like survivability, but comfort because of that. So this monetary compensation is so important and it's an incredible thing, gift, not gift, but it's an incredible right that we can acknowledge for people that cannot work. And that's, and that's kind of why the DSM has to exist. Um, And that's why I think it's important for people to know the changes that are going on because it affects you medically. Um, Yeah. We'll see you next time. Sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, stop talking, Sarah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so stay tuned after the break as we talk about the changes that have happened with the DSM-5 TR. And we're back. Hi. So, jo- Joanna, do you want to, you know, how would you like to do Let's Let's like let's bring our listeners behind the veil a little bit. Do you mm-hmm. want to read things to me and I'll react to them? Or do you want to go back and forth up to we you? Can go, let's just see how it goes. I'll first say that the, I did some research into the changes of uh, in the DSM-5 TR. So there are some sources that I've, I've used for that. And those are uh, what, what the new DSM-5 updates could mean for your mental health by Tanisha White for psychcentral.com. The Impact of Culture, Race, Social Determinants Reflected Throughout the New DSM-5-TR by Mark Morgan for PsychiatricOnline.org and Facts About the DSM-5-TR from PsychiatricOnline.org. And a trigger warning for this section, um, we will mention suicidality and Mm self-harm. Yeah. So um, I I said this before during during our history lesson, but the changes are based, the changes to the DSM-5-TR are based on scientific literature, um, which, you know, this information was provided in in the new introduction section, and also the use of terminology section was updated as well. These are like big sections in the beginning of the book. (laughs) Um, and, and the biggest thing, so that a text revision to the DSM is a systematic text review where, um, whereas a new edition when released is like when there are enough changes to the field to support substantial creation, revision, and elimination of diagnostic criteria or, or disorders. Um, the big, the big, the huge difference between the DSM four and five, which Sarah and I experienced, because we went to school when the DSM-5 came out, the elimination of axes. So like axis one, two. Yes. Which is very confusing when you go into the field and everyone's talking about something else and you're like, I didn't learn that. Um, yeah. Yeah, because axis two was uh, had a lot of personality disordered and um, what was it, psychosis? I don't even, I don't I don't know. even know. I don't, I don't know. Need to know. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing I found out is that anyone can initiate a process to revise the DSM. Anyone. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Like, like a licensed 
clinician or just like it just says anyone anyone can do it yeah so if you look at if you want to make a change if you if you look at the facts about the dsm-5 tr uh from psychiatriconline.org it has a link to how you do it yeah what a good resource yeah we should share that i will um one of the big things that was added to this tr was a new disorder called prolonged grief disorder um Mm. It's a formal diagnosis for those who have faced difficulty coping with loss for an extended period of time. Um, it's an intense and impairing grief. Uh, I think in the past, these clients would have been given a diagnosis of adjustment disorders or depression, but the research shows that about 10% of adults may experience this prolonged grief, which is a lot of adults. Yeah. 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 And I wonder, I wonder how much, uh, the pandemic that we're, you know, have been living through and continue to live through has to do with this being added. I agree. Um, it's, so it's a persistent grief response for a duration of longer than a year, uh, for adults, six months for a child. And it significantly interrupts that person's day-to-day functioning and it can't be contributed to any other conditions such as MDD or PTSD. I think Sarah, you're kind of getting at how, especially the times we're living in right now, because they're so complicated. I think there's some PTSD thrown in there. Maybe there's a grief response. Maybe there's MDD because we're inside. Like, I think research coming from this period of time is going to be helpful in, in maybe getting people more comprehensive treatment for what they're experiencing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I, I, I can, I can hear people like and any kind of criticism, maybe of a lay person, which again would be understandable, no judgment, but a lay person may be saying, well, like, why, why do we need to, why do we need to like classify grief? But we're not, we're not talking. I mean, obviously, yes, we have all learned in the past like couple decades that grief looks differently for everybody, but we're talking grief that, you know, begins to take away from your, your life. We're not, we're not talking grief where we're, we're giving each other space to grieve and to, you know, learn how to learn how to grow around our grief. We're talking about a person who, who's unable to learn how to grow around their grief. Um, And that, so, so they're not living their life anymore and they're not choosing to, but they're trapped in this. Um, And that is something that you can get treatment for. And that is a wonderful thing. And this also goes to say that, you know, we don't experience psychological diagnoses or mental health diagnoses one at a time. Uh, it can be multiple diagnoses at once when someone diagnoses you with, with a disorder from the DSM five, that's the most prevalent disorder that, that they're identifying at that moment. So this is, this grief is what is maybe causing anxiety or maybe causing MDD, but it's, it's stemming from this grief. Yeah. Yeah. And just termination, clarification, termination terminology clarification mdd is major depressive disorder if we haven't said it already and ptsd is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder but our you know our initial illnesses that maybe brought us into therapy or brought us into treatment or even the doctor's office could be exacerbating other things that we are dealing with or be exacerbated by yeah yeah yeah. it's a lot we all we all can suffer from multiple things at once yeah yeah and it's also something that i've talked to clients about you know what, what do we feel like is the most prevalent thing for you when they're going into a psychiatrist's office or a doctor's office to ask for help? Like, what do we need to, to really highlight 
that's going on for you that yes, I'm experiencing anxiety, but the anxiety is due to this, maybe due to Mm -hmm. like ADHD or autism and not just an anxiety, not a, an anxiety disorder by itself. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And this is why I, maybe I'm getting on a soapbox right now, but, um, this is why (laughs) I think it's important for us to talk about the DSM five. If you're not a clinician, I think it's important to know that there's these changes happening, especially as we move along to the other changes that have happened in this review, because it impacts you and how you're seen in, in a medical setting. Um, and it impacts clinicians. You deal with psychiatrists, you deal with doctors, you deal with it's, it's a big deal. Yes. Yeah. 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 That was a good soapbox. Thank you. I think that was important. I like yeah. it. We love to empower our listeners. We love to empower our clients. I listen, if you, if you are in treatment with a therapist, ask, ask for clarification mm-hmm. on your rights. Always, always know what your rights are as a client. And if you feel that there's like some maybe caginess about that, that's something to really pay attention to. You know, I'm not saying dump your therapist immediately if they're not letting you know. I mean, maybe I am kind of if they're not letting you know your rights, but definitely like just know that you don't have to be in the dark. Yeah. I'm trying to say. And the, the DSM gives specific criteria as to how to diagnose somebody with this. So you can always ask the clinician, like, can we go over this? I mean, I, in my practice, don't like to go from like a clinical perspective because I feel like there are so many things happening at once that like mm-hmm. giving, yeah. Um, <laughs> but if, if we want to go over it, you know, if, if it helps to have a label on it, because that's totally valid, we can go over, you know, what the criteria are and how do you feel like this and how can we go forward with, with our work together or help you get other, other support within this diagnosis. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So that was prolonged grief disorder. Um, (laughs) the next thing that was added back, uh, was the, was unspecified mood disorder. It was removed from the DSM five in 2013. Um, and it was re-added to help clinicians avoid misdiagnosis because sometimes symptoms don't neatly fit into bipolar or depressive disorders. Um, which is like exactly what we've been saying. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, I love, I, man, I love like an unspecified something. I just, especially if it's maybe like a, like a, no, I don't want to say that. I, I just love having, having the ability to really put like a label on it and then say, you know what, we're going to learn more about this, but this is a mood disorder, or, you know, this is, this is a learning disability, or this is an anxiety disorder. We might not know exactly which one yet, but I I love an unspecified for the moment disorder. Absolutely. And this gives, you know, more room for the, for the client and the clinician to like, okay, we're going to treat this as, as a mood disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, It also helps with this unspecified mood disorder also helps because sometimes those who have bipolar disorder are misdiagnosed with a depressive disorder and given a medication that might not help them. So this one was also added to help with medication. I also want to say that there's nothing in the DSM about medication. Um, that's moving on to psychiatry. This is kind of like the bridge. Yes. Yeah. So the next thing that was added was a code for non-suicidal self-harm. There was also a code for suicidal behavior added. Um, this just 
this is just self-harm without the presence of suicidality. Um, it helps to assess risk um, and help clinicians focus on what a person might need instead of just saying all self-harm is suicidal behavior. I'm so glad this is in here. There's such a stigma around clients that self-harm mm-hmm. and in the medical field, like from, from doctors, from nurses, from therapists, you know, yeah, in the I mean, mental health field degree, too. Yeah. In the mental health field, there's just this like, I, okay. So yes, if you do it, it is a, if you do something, if you behave in a certain way, it's a behavior, but then once it starts to be labeled as behaviors or once it starts to be labeled as attention seeking or all these like really, really harmful, very unkind labels that we can, or judgments we can pass on self-harm, I should say, because that's exactly what it is. But oftentimes, and more, I mean, a lot of times self-care has nothing to do with suicidality. It's just a method of expression. And we all know, or, and if you don't, you're learning right now that emotional expression is not a tool that we are born with. It's something that we're Mm -hmm. taught. And if we are raised by caregivers that do not have their own expression, if they express through violence or they express through silent treatments, you are not going to be taught how to express yourself in a way that's helpful and healthy. So a lot of times self-harm, you know, self-harm is the only option that people acknowledge because our bodies are what we have control over. Yeah. And I, I'm just doing a quick housekeeping. I think you said self-care in there, but you meant self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I think also once suicidality uh, is introduced into like a clinical, into like a clinical, um, encounter or a medical encounter. There's like so many other things that need to happen. Um, you know, because of the systems that we work in, like a suicide assessment risk, which can like add to stigma and, and can just be exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when self-harm is not, is, is not, uh, in the presence of suicidality. Um, and there's also a lot of stigma around suicidality as well. Yeah. Right. A, a lot of like language, including like uh, selfishness and, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that's like the big one, right? So really again, passing this very hard judgment on people that do make that decision or like have that impulse as well. It's it, taking stigma away from that not just for the clients, but for loved ones left behind is very, very important in managing that grief too. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of things were added to the, the text review. Not a lot of things were taken away. Um, mm-hmm. There was gender inclusive language added, which is great. Um, and the entire mm-hmm. text of the gender dysphoria chapter has been updated based on relevant literature. Um, I feel like in the past 10 years, there has been a lot of um, just gender inclusivity increasement that's not a word uh acknowledgement in our field which is fantastic and i think it's time that our manuals have that as well um I'm actually very proud of this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, things can always move a little more quickly, of course. But I mean, this this is the language that we, you and I, use every day, and it's just it's just very nice that we're getting this, I, this kind of you know affirmation from our field that this is the direction we're heading in. It's I'm I don't say this often, but I'm proud. <laughs> yeah, I think this part and the focus on the race and discrimination, which we'll talk about. Soon. Yeah. I'm I'm like really excited about that that our field is trending towards that instead of yeah. just like oh no the way we are doing it is fine. Um, mm-hmm. So there's specific language that was changed. So the the 
I'll just say that before they said desired gender and that was changed to experience gender, which is a huge change um, and yeah. really important. Uh, cross-sex medical procedure was changed to gender affirming medical procedure. Another fantastic change. Mm-hmm. Um, and natal male and natal female was changed to individual assigned male or female at birth. Uh, so those are the exact changes that have been made. I'm, I'm kind of excited to read this gender dysphoria chapter, um, in the, yeah, in the definitely. And, and I'm thinking about like, you know, AFAB, AMAB, assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth and how that, that gives the individual like the opportunity to not feel as connected as we kind of force that as like yeah. culturally has been forced on them. Like, okay, no, this, this is just what you were assigned but like, yeah, the natal male and natal female, like it forces this connection that maybe the person doesn't, I mean, like obviously doesn't want to feel or doesn't, you yeah. know, is being made to feel in other areas. And this like, what, what an important, see, this is why language is so important. I what know. an important change that is. I'm thinking about the language between desired versus experienced. Yeah. Oh, oh. Well, yes. Yeah. Because it's not a desire. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, similar to similar to preferred pronouns. You know, I don't prefer to be called she, her. I am she, her. You know, so it's not something I prefer. It's something that I have and am. So another yeah. change, just in our lexicon, uh, not not in here, but yeah, very yeah. important. Um, so that's the big. That's those are the big changes in the gender inclusive language. I'm sure there are going to be mm-hmm. more changes going forward, as well as more changes because there's there is a large focus in this text revision on. Um, race and discrimination. Um, so the so the APA and the DSM people uh, worked with two groups: the Ethno Racial Equity and Inclusion Work Group and the Cross Cutting Culture uh, Review Group to make these huge changes to um, to the DSM five TR, acknowledging race and discrimination and challenging the view that race and genetics are the same thing. Um, so they changed. Let's just like soak in a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is so huge. And I mean, this is something that we were taught in school, but that wasn't in the manual, which is so, because like, that's also like where insurance starts from. That's where, uh, you know, prescribing medication starts from that. This is so, yeah. Anyway. So if we're thinking about Uh, medication that is prescribed to black indigenous and people of color in America, you will see a big drop off in pain management medication. And you'll also see a lot of, a lot of misdiagnoses of illnesses and a lot of just medical gaslighting. So this using this language and bringing that in, even, even just like teaching, teaching clinicians and physicians, like if we are putting enough focus on this to change language, that means that we need to put enough focus on it, or that may lead us to think that we need to put enough focus on it to actually change how we are diagnosing or prescribing or yeah. even having conversations in the room. Yeah. So there yeah. was a big update too. That's the section three chapter um, called culture and psych- psychiatric diagnoses that gives clinicians the tools on integrating culture and social context in their clinical assessment and diagnoses. It gives them language to use. Um, oh that God. shows them the, you know, the, the research and how things are, and I'll, I'll go into some examples in a minute. Um, but that, you know, there, there were also terms that were changed. So instead of using the term racial, um, 
terms such as racialized and ethno-racial are used to highlight that race is a construct resulting from many different factors such as cultural, social, legal, and political. And I think this is so important because there's, uh, yeah, I don't even know if I can explain myself why this is so important. Well, let me, can, if I can take a, take yeah. a, take a try, take a college try. I'm I think a lot the, of really, thank you, thank you. I won't drop it. I think a lot of really derailing conversation can be, can be brought up around the use of the word race. Because, oh, you know, it's, we're, we're one human race, but I mean, we use, we use <sighs> race, we use racialized, we use racial, that is the language we use around it because we have created race by treating each other differently. It, it, so it's what we use. So any, any attempt to derail those conversations because of the, um, because of the semantical use of, <clears throat> of race and racial is is extremely limiting and i think i mean i mean i think it's racist in its own in its yeah, own right absolutely right. yeah yeah so again this you know they looked at a lot of research and instances where higher rates of disorders were attributed to specific communities um mm-hmm. i have two examples so there is an instance of uh higher substance use disorder diagnoses among native american communities mm-hmm. but this is without considering social determinants of health in those communities, um, mental determinants of health in those communities, and as well as significant history of collective trauma in those communities. Um, So this is kind of what I was talking about earlier that, yes, there might be a substance use disorder going on, but in order to treat the symptoms of that substance use disorder, we might need to look at another disorder, uh, or maybe another disorder is more um, pertinent to how this person is going to get better and also getting better in their, in the person's view and not a clinical view. Yeah, definitely. Because hot take treating a substance abuse disorder without acknowledging trauma, mood disorders, or any other, you know, comorbidity is shaming people for having a substance use disorder. And it, it literally mean, never works. Ever. I mean, my, my hot take is that all substance use disorders are comorbid with something else. <laughs> yes, there will, there will always be a comorbid illness happening. People are not using substances because they are, because they have had the opportunity to live a life of peace. It's yeah. simply not, it doesn't occur. And sometimes people are using substances because they haven't been able to uh, get the help that they need and Mm -hmm. they are, you know, treating themselves, uh, which is why sometimes I don't appreciate use disorders, Um, you know, especially if someone discloses to a doctor that they use marijuana. Oh, now you have a marijuana (sighs) use disorder. And it's like, that's not helpful. Um, It's it's not helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for my EMDR folks out there too, you know, we, there is this understanding that uh, most, if not all substance use orders are one of those locked memories and some of those memories that need to be reprocessed because somewhere along the line, an individual was in pain and they realized that a substance could help lessen that pain. And as soon as they did that, that, that bond was made and that does yeah. not really go away until reprocessing occurs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Which might not happen if they only have a diagnosis of substance use disorder. Yes, a diagnosis is not treatment. A di- yeah. yeah, which is which is why 
that I sometimes have a problem with, with DSM and manuals like this, because like, yeah. Yeah. You should not be able to diagnose like opioid use disorder without also diagnosing where it's, where it's coming from PTSD or yeah. Or C or P or CPTSD. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. um, Another example is that there are high rates of schizophrenia diagnoses among black people uh, that don't account for racial bias, which uh, research has shown it was clinicians not following the manual and instead using their racial bias um, to diagnose mm-hmm. with schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, that that their early childhood trauma is, is a huge determinant of psychiatric health, especially towards psychosis and clinicians maybe aren't aren't appreciating fully those early determinants of health, um, in their diagnoses of schizophrenia. Yeah. I I mean, also if you like be brave enough as a clinician, if you feel that you are out of your depth or maybe don't understand this, it is the brave, not, not even brave. It's the kindest, most ethical thing you can do to refer someone out to a who, to a clinician who does understand what's going on okay to not understand. I mean, there's always room to help yourself grow and learn. It's not okay to cause harm because you don't understand, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially you know, with, especially with the schizophrenia diagnosis, because there is so oh much that goes along with that as far as stigma and how, how people in the health and mental health areas are going to initiate contact with you and even police mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. So check our hot and warm lines also for Philadelphia area. Do not call the police. If there is a psychiatric emergency, please arm yourself with the correct numbers and resources to use. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, there's, so, I'm just thinking of clients that I've encountered where their main diagnosis was MDD, major depressive disorder with psychotic features And that if I hadn't used a manual or like been very, I mean, I could see a racial bias in me just being, just saying schizophrenia because I see psychosis. Whereas like, okay, this, this psychosis is not, is not following, you know, the, the lines of, of schizophrenia. It's, it's, it's sort of going somewhere else. And I think also that clients are afraid to tell clinicians about any psychotic symptoms they're having because then they just get slapped with, with, you know, unspecified psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, and, it, and it follows them, right? Because a lot of, a lot of new psychiatrists or nurse practitioners or, you know, counselors will take on new clients, see that there's a diagnosis there and they will not, I, oftentimes they won't reassess. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, this is here. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to touch this. I don't want to be responsible for this. So yes, if they, if these diagnoses are there, do painstaking work to make sure that they are there because if they are there, it is so important for the folks to have them. But if they're not there, there can be a lot of harm done. I mean, I I can't imagine if I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and then five years later, someone's like, I don't know if you have schizophrenia. Like, are you really? Yeah. That's (laughs) that's it's so much. It's, it's ludicrous. I, so that book, remember that we read in Joanna, oh my God, that we read in grad school, Joanna called crazy in America. And it wasn't crazy. Like, people psychotic crazy it was it's crazy how we treat people with mental illness um in america just like these like vignettes and stories about folks that have just received improper care Mm -hmm. poor care and 
you, you know, the challenges that they had to face and the trauma that they had to face because of the care, not even because of their diagnoses. Yeah. We, we criminalize mental illness. Yeah. All right. Let's get oh all the boxes. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, you know, this it's being in private practice has been nice because I haven't had to focus on diagnosing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's important for those of us who are in private practice to continue to like look at these changes and look how diagnosing can help our practice. I mean, because it can also harm our practice, but it can also help. Um, as far as determining like where we're going to go with treatment and, you know, I mean, that basically where we're going to go with treatment. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. I love it. I am, I'm, I mean, as much as this is bringing up like my frustration with our field, I mean, the fact that this is all in there, mental, this is very exciting. I, there's definitely room for more, right. But this is so exciting. And I think also there with this, with these huge changes in, you know, focus on race and discrimination, that there's kind of a, a, that, that the DSM entity has said that this is going to continue to be something that is added and that is re-looked at and revised in, in other editions and other text reviews. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it follows our culture so much, right? Because how, like, how much was added during, like, um, civil rights, you know, in the 60s, they added, like, the cultural piece, and then 70s and 80s, there was the women's liberation, and, I mean, and not not even LGBTQ, but just, like, you know, gay rights, and now that we are also really focusing heavily on the 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 violation of rights of BIPOC and trans and non-binary folks in our country, it is now they're having attention drawn to them here in an affirming way. And yeah, I mean, yeah, we're keeping up with it or they are keeping up with it. At and a rate yeah. Cool. Obviously it's not going to, it's not enough because this is like a yeah. system that started in 1918. So it's, you know, a racist system. Yeah. Um, but you heard but, it here. <laughs> hot take. Um, but that, you know, like, I think it's so important that, you know, we, as I think this is also Sarah, what you and I try are trying to do with this podcast. Now I'm on like a, a very tall soapbox, Um, the meta soapbox, the meta soapbox, but like, you know, that there is more than just a couch and a white dude involved in mental health. It's, it's the clinicians it's their, their their traumas it's it's the traumas that are going on right now i'm i'm really interested to to see you know in the next 10 years what is going to happen with mental health and how we're you know navigating this crisis worldwide um that's going to be really interesting to see and i just i yeah i lost my train of thought but it was very important (laughs) No, I mean, fuck yeah, because therapy is now a person that looks like you and has a similar background that will cry with you in session that will, that will need, that will be a person with you. They won't be cold and distant. They won't be that blank slate. They won't be from a, they won't always be from a different socioeconomic, socioeconomic background or racial background or ethnic background or gender, right? You won't have to teach them about your identity. Yes. You don't have to look. If you uh, look for the right therapist, they are going to know and they are going to be a person with you. And how fucking, oh no, wait, 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 how much of an honor is that? 
to just sit with clients and be a human with them. Yeah. Oh. Fuck yes. Yelled into my ceiling. <laughs> I was also looking at my ceiling going, yes. Um, Cause it's so important. I just feel like this is such a, this is why, you know, mental health is a barrier because you know, I mean, I can't imagine someone coming into my office when I was first starting. I was like, what is this 25 year old girl going to know about me in order to help me? You now know? I'd be like, thank God, like a young person. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you know, that, that it's important that clinicians, I'm talking to you, you, you continue to to learn and to grow and that clients, it's important that you find a clinician that you feel like is growing with you. Um, Mm -hmm. that's, that says, Hey, this is going into an area that I'm, I'm not as, you know, uh, it's not my wheelhouse. We can, I can learn along with you and we can do it together or I can refer you to somebody else because like, Yeah. yeah, this, my, I guess like the only thing that's not in therapy is my ego. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it doesn't really have a place there, but like my personhood is there. It's there, babe. It's there. Cause how, how is someone going to come to you with their personhood to give it to you? If you're like, I don't have a personhood. I know what a, I mean, yeah. 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 I don't need to do that. That was perfect. <laughs> was. Yeah. So those are the big changes that have been made to the DSM-5 TR. I'm, I'm excited about them, you know, with caution. Yeah. I'm not also, like this. We would this... love to hear. Yeah. We are, we are just sitting here saying, hey, you know what? Good job. Keep going. <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to Yay. Um, I mean, American Psychological and Psychiatric Association have a long racist oppressive history. I think it was, is it American Psychological or Psychiatric Association that recently had that person running for an office that wrote that um, or for, for our listeners, psychology today became under fire from a lot of inclusive therapists because they allowed a, a psychologist to public to publish an article that was defending uh, the Karen archetype, the vilification of Karens not and like kind of drawing a light on like why we should feel bad for them, even though they are, they are, they, that name is received because they can bring about violence and death to black Americans. Anyway, my point is like the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association still have a lot of work to do. Um, a lot of work to do. So we acknowledge you. We pin this little badge on your chest, but keep going. Don't yes. stop. Yeah, don't stop. And clinicians don't stop. Don't stop. Because like what leads to change is, is clinicians changing ahead of the ahead of the manuals because we can't change the manuals we can't have, people we can't are people saying grow no. if we, yeah. right we can't have people grow if they are holding them back with our archaic views and yeah. un, unanalyzed views look within look within babe here we go here it is <laughs> so yeah thanks for holding on here for this kind of different episode of therapist next door i think it was really important for us to say um maybe mm-hmm. not as jokey as usual but that's okay. Yeah. Um, I bet this this is why y'all are listening. This is why we, like Joanna mentioned, this is why we do the work that we do because we want to make this accessible for people that are entering into a therapy space again, or maybe for the first time. But I mean, look up the TSM, learn about what's what label, what label and diagnosis is being put on you and ask questions about it. Discuss it with your therapist. Um, and yeah, 
live long and prosper. Absolutely. She said for the first time ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Uh, All right. Any final thoughts? Uh, No. Should we just go into the end of the... Let's do our... Yeah, let's go into the end. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TNDPod1, as in the number one, or visit our website at TNDPodcast. We also, on our Instagram now in our link tree, have the option for you to fill out an episode, (gasps) guest, request, interview request. That is amazing. (laughs) It's on our website as well. So check it out. If you want to be on the podcast, fill out an interview. What the fuck? Fill out a guest request (laughs) form. Yeah. And if you're, and again, if it's during our hiatus, fill it out. We'll be around. Fill it out. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be here. We'll be here. Um, uh, If you would like the ability to vote on questions, we ask our guests uh, or even the, the uh, topics that we talk about in bonus episodes, bonus episodes um also you can get uh the research history lessons and changes that we you know the documents that we made for this uh episode can't think of the word there it is okay um those are also available to some patron levels on our patreon uh so head over there to patreon.com slash tnd podcast you get one bonus episode a month and you get the history lessons one bonus episode a month you know at certain tiers and uh you know the history lesson at certain tiers which is great if you'd like to be on the show i'd suggest that you go to our instagram and fill out that form but if that's not for you you can also send us an email at therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com we'll probably just send you a link to the form um honestly if you if you have any thoughts (laughs) We're in transition also, with that. Yeah, this is a new thing. Um, if you have any thoughts, you can also email us at therapistnextdoor at gmail.com. Sarah, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, catch me on Teletherapy with Sarah on Instagram. Catch my website at teletherapywithsarah.com for bi-weekly blog posts for mental health and life skills for millennials and um, for <laughs> therapy clients and for coaching clients. Um, yeah, again, visit our Patreon. I mean, we're just we're just trying mm-hmm. to destigmatize mental illness. What is it? Destigmatize mental, mental illness health. and demis- destigmatize mental health and demystify the therapy experience. We were trying to do this for because we wanted to hear this before. Like we wanted to hear this when we were younger and entering into therapy for the yeah. first time. So help us help you and others. Absolutely. How about you, Joanna? Where are um, you? Yeah, I'm at uh, orianatherapy.com. I am going to say my, I'm not accepting new clients right now. Probably not until September. Um, yes. Boundaries. Hooray. Um, and yeah, I think our Patreon is important. I think check out our, uh, our Instagram. Cause Sarah does such a good job with our Instagram. It's amazing. Um, it's really cool. And also a great way to connect with us. So yeah. Yeah. We love community. We love building the community. We have some awesome folks in our community so far. So join in. Yes. Until next time. We We are your therapists therapists next door. door. See ya. Bye.